Chapter 7 of Napoleon, A Short Biography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Napoleon, A Short Biography by R. M. Johnston. Chapter 7 Legislation and Administration. The Consular Constitution. Bonaparte secures a dictatorship. Plebiscites. Legal reform. Influence and work of Bonaparte. The Napoleonic bureaucracy. Religious questions. Death of Washington. The press. Royalist overtures. It will be better briefly to depart from a chronological order and to consider as a whole the institutions that owed their origin to Napoleon they came into existence for the most part shortly after his accession to power and may be conveniently thought of as originating in the period eighteen hundred to eighteen o five there are three chief questions to be considered in this respect first constitutional second legal and administrative third religious the new constitution of france evolved from the revolution of brumaire had as its fundamental fact the personality of bonaparte for the sentiment that had made brumaire possible the sentiment represented by sillets and the moderate politicians was that the executive power must be strengthened or the republic would perish but theories are not the business of a strong executive officer character personality and facts must be the predominant note and this was what france found in bonaparte the very first meeting of the new government showed clearly what had happened on the day following the overturning of the council of five hundred the three provisional consuls assembled at the luxembourg sillez on entering the room asked the question who is to preside but bonaparte had already sat down at the head of the table and roger ducot replied do you not see that the general presides the question was never raised again the new constitution was prepared by the provisional consuls working with a large committee representing the faction of the ancients and five hundred that had supported the new government it was principally made up of men who whatever they had been in the early republican days were now in favor of moderation and a strong executive with many if not with most the fact that the new government might have occasion to utilize and to remunerate their talents had the greatest weight the committee and consuls now set to work to frame a new constitution their first care was to create four great bodies first the council of state whose functions were to advise the executive in the preparation of legislation second the tribunate which was to discuss all laws but without voting on them third the legislative body which by a converse process was to vote on all laws but without discussing them fourth the senate whose principal duty was to decide on constitutional questions raised by the tribunate this may be characterized in a few words as the diffusion of the political forces of the country and as the provision of a large number of salaried positions in which the men of the revolution might be conveniently deposited the really useful body of the four 
was the council of state in which were placed all the workers with practical knowledge of questions of finance law or administration but however great the lassitude of france it was impossible to put forward any constitution that did not make some show of being based on democratic principles it was therefore provided that there should be elections but these were of a very indirect and illusory character their result was merely to place before the executive a list arrived at by several progressive steps from which members of the senate were appointed the senators in turn named the members of the tribunate and legislative body in practice this gave the head of the state a fairly effective control over all these bodies the most thorny subject of discussion in the framing of the constitution was left for the last what was to be the nature and extent of the executive power on this subject Sies had some ready-made theories to propose, but they were of an unpractical nature and were rapidly demolished by Bonaparte. This marked the point at which his influence gained a complete predominance, and that of Sies began to sink. During the lengthy discussions that had taken place, Bonaparte had shown that his was the master mind, and Sies soon after dropped out of the government receiving handsome compensation in emoluments and honors. It was finally decided that there should be a first, second, and third consul appointed for ten years, that these officials should have a general control over foreign affairs, the army, navy, and police, that Bonaparte should be first consul, and should appoint the other two. Last of all came the question, what should be the powers of the consuls as between one another here really lay the knot of the new constitution and most declined the attempt to untie it one solution would give france a modified directoire the other a master at this point when all hesitated bonaparte's prompt intervention proved decisive and all bowed to his imperious will he dictated a clause whereby no act of the executive was to be undertaken without the first consul consulting his colleagues, but they were given no vote, all decisions resting solely with him. This clause made Bonaparte, in effect, a dictator, and among those who realized the fact were doubtless more than one who believed that this was, after all, the best thing for France and for themselves. Bonaparte appointed as his colleagues Cambaceres, an eminent jurist, who, as a member of the convention, had voted for the death of Louis XVI, and Lebrun, a conservative of great financial knowledge, respected for his integrity and moderation. Among the first ministers were men of all shades of opinion, notable among whom were Talleyrand Perigord, ex-abbe and member of the convention a subtle intriguer and experienced diplomatist godin a functionary in the department of finance whose ability in that sphere was of the greatest fouché the ex-terrorist famous for the massacres of lyon always ready to support whatever government might be in power a master craftsman in every device and deceit of secret police work as soon as the new constitution was formulated 
it was submitted to the popular acceptance by a plebiscite or referendum the result of which was satisfactory to the government the plebiscite has played a large part in french politics since that date and it is as well to state that it is in a strict sense not a true test of the political opinion of a country when the question at issue is one involving a change of government in such a case it is usual to frame the question submitted to the people in such a form that a negative vote implies a desire for turning out the government de facto it is self-evident that the citizens must always be few whose disapproval of such a government will carry them to the point of recording a vote which if successful could only mean revolution or civil war so much for the constitution evolved from the revolution of brumaire let us now consider the great legal and administrative work undertaken by the newly made first consul napoleon has been called the new or the modern justinian he was in fact a great codifier of the law like his roman predecessor he entrusted to his ablest jurist the care of reducing the chaos of french laws to order the upheaval and confusion caused by the revolution facilitated the task of cambaceres and his assistants the ordonnance of louis the fourteenth the subsequent laws of the monarchy the mass of legislative enactments of the republic were recast in one piece and fitted into a somewhat theoretical framework derived from the principles of the roman law bonaparte's technical knowledge did not fit him to take a very active part in these labors yet the credit for the framing of the code napoleon is properly his for it was his unceasing stimulation that got the work done he would occasionally keep his counsellors of state working all through the night till dawn he would decide the points on which the jurists disagreed and even the most narrow specialist rarely left the council board without feeling that the marvellous pressure and power of elucidation of the great intellect that had presided had deepened his own knowledge of his particular subject the council of state was eminently a body for work and its master drove it as hard as he did himself the civil code afterwards called code napoleon was published in eighteen o four it was followed by commercial and criminal codes but it does not come within the scope of this book to attempt a description of their provisions it will suffice to say that the legal system of napoleon forms at the present day the basis of much of the legislation of the world its influence is strong from prussia to sicily from st petersburg to madrid and even in such distant parts of the globe as java south africa and louisiana if it is possible to give an impression of the code napoleon in a few words one might describe it as representing the mass of the laws and customs of old france purged by the revolution and poured by the genius of napoleon into a latin mould paternal authoritative clear but inelastic the code was akin in spirit to the administrative fabric that was erected alongside of it the state was converted into one great bureaucratic machine every phase of the life of each citizen was classified supervised and directed what the french people want declared bonaparte 
is equality, not liberty, and his system was accordingly framed to provide all with equal justice, equal privileges, equal opportunity of advancement. But if the state was prepared to grant justice and preferment, it also took care to secure the services of all the intellect of the country and to repress all attempts at individual action. Even education and religion were brigaded and administered in military fashion. Membre de l'Institut, illustrious savants or artists, Cuvier, Laplace, or David, were officials salaried, uniformed, and supervised by the state. France had been divided into departments by the Republic. Each of these divisions had as chief administrator a prefect, depending on the Minister of the Interior. The principal duties of this functionary were to administer matters of revenue and police. Under him came the mayors of townships, and lower still came subordinate officials, all under the control of the government, down to the gamekeepers or sellers of tobacco and salt. The administrative or bureaucratic machine was powerfully supported by an extensive system of secret police. The ramifications of this department were so extensive that Fouché is reported actually to have secured reports from Josephine herself as to the daily doings of the household of the First Consul. With such a system, there was a chance for every citizen, provided only he would accept the political situation and support the government, but it was entirely a downwards system, proceeding from the governor, not from the governed, and in no wise resembling free institutions. Feudalism and privileges had been swept away by the revolution, but personal government had been reinstated by Bonaparte, and personal government of a far more efficient and stable form than that of the Bourbons, because wonderfully adapted to the practical requirements of a European nation in the nineteenth century. Bonaparte had created what was the most powerful and effective instrument for governing a country and for centralizing and directing its strength yet seen in Europe. None could fail to see the good points of his system. The opponents of France, after suffering from the effects of the machine Napoleon had constructed, copied it, and now bureaucratic government with a greater or less admixture of democratic tendencies or appearances, with an executive directing power strong in some countries, weak in others, is the one form to be met with in every part of the continent of Europe. But what else could be expected from Napoleon? The revolution of Brumaire was not the work of a man whose first thought was the good of his country, and the two great currents of sentiment that brought it about were nothing better than self-preservation on the part of the Sillez faction and ambition on that of Bonaparte. The religious question yet remains to be dealt with. In this, as in all things, Bonaparte took a purely practical point of view, he considered Christianity, with Mohammedanism and all other religions, respectable and useful. For many years he had apparently no religious belief, but during boyhood and towards the close of his life he observed the forms of the Catholic faith. Whatever his inmost belief, as a statesman his attitude towards Rome may be said to have been purely political. 
during the campaign of Italy in 1796-97, the Directoire had repeatedly pressed him to action against Rome, but he had shown enough reluctance in carrying out these orders to make clear to the astute papal diplomatists that the young Republican general might one day be their friend. No sooner was he in power than he issued orders for removing the trammels placed on the Catholic worship. The ringing of the church bells throughout France a few days after the 18th of Brumaire created a religious ferment that astonished the government and the country, but that did no harm to the first consul's popularity. He recognized even more clearly than before the deep attachment of the people to their religion and determined to go further. Notwithstanding the murmurs of the army, in which atheism had been promoted to the rank of a creed, negotiations were opened with Rome, and in 1801 a treaty was signed re-establishing Catholicism in a privileged position. By the Concordat, as this treaty is known, Bonaparte obtained control of the nomination and salaries of all high ecclesiastical dignitaries, thus securing over them a hold nearly equal to that which he had over his civil and military functionaries. A solemn service held to celebrate this event at Notre-Dame led to unseemly scenes in which some of the generals, among them Lannes and Augereau, gave full vent to their disapprobation of the course taken by the First Consul. The feelings of the staunch Republicans were further ruffled by the introduction of prayers for the head of the state. Bonaparte was clear-sighted in his religious policy and took this great step forward with calm decision. Like every other act of the consulate, it turned partly on considerations relating to the strengthening of his personal authority. In the early days, however, when his supporters were still Republican soldiers or Republican politicians and not yet Bonapartists, it was impossible for him to profess any but Republican opinions and intentions. A few weeks after his accession to power, a very solemn farce was played on the occasion of the death of George Washington, December 14, 1799. A funeral ceremony was held in honor of the American patriot, and the speeches delivered on that occasion more than inferred that France could now gaze on a Washington of her own. Yet, when we are inclined to view with amused indignation the obvious fraud and hollowness of such professions, ought we not to marvel equally at the fact that the politicians of America have generally shown more respect for the methods and aims of Bonaparte than they have for the lofty statesmanship and patriotism of Washington? Acting on the principle he had constantly invoked since his return from Egypt, Bonaparte, once in power, stopped the excessive political persecution that had so long been thought necessary. Many political prisoners were speedily released, and France was thrown open to thousands of exiles. While with one hand he thus acted with great apparent liberality, with the other he skillfully seized and muzzled the press, which he retained completely in his power during the next fourteen years. To what extent this control was carried may be judged by the fact 
that the moniteur never at any time made the slightest reference to the greatest naval battle of modern times one in which france was not successful that of trafalgar the new government was a success from the first and after marengo its popularity was immense every month the position of france seemed to improve visibly and bonaparte soon thought he might advance a step towards the throne the comte de provence elder of the surviving brothers of louis the sixteenth approached him with a view to a bourbon restoration this overture bonaparte politely declined and shortly afterwards a pamphlet appeared entitled parallel between cromwell caesar monk and bonaparte in which the imperial ambitions of the first consul were clearly revealed the impression produced was not favorable france was not yet ready and both the ardent republicans and the ardent royalists realized that bonaparte was their most dangerous enemy and prepared to destroy him End of chapter 7 Recording by Linda Johnson